This is Chapter 102 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we talk to thriller writer Linda Fairstein, whose new book shares a title with a bottle of bourbon. We knock off some Brooklyn hipsters, and then we learn what holds a family together when everything falls apart with author Anissa Gray. Blood Oath is the 20th book in Linda Fairstein's best-selling Alexandra Cooper series. Coop has been through a lot in these years, and not all of it has been well-received by readers. But Linda tells our Pat Farnack she heard the complaints and thinks loyal fans will like the new turn the series has taken. Every new book of yours I read, I, I think she's going to let me down. Isn't it terrible? But you never do. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I know Alex has been a little uh, out of sorts the last two books, so I, I just needed to bring her back strong with a good story. So thank you. Well, I'm glad that we all got to enjoy another Alex Cooper adventure. This time she's back um, to the sex crimes unit from a leave. And uh, tell us why she had to take a leave from her post for a little bit. Okay. Uh, several books back, Devil's Bridge. I wanted Alex to experience what so many of her victims had. She was kidnapped, and actually the story was told in Devil's Bridge by Mike Chapman, the detective, uh, which was another device. I just He's so many readers' favorite character. I really oh. wanted to do a story from his point of view. Mm-hmm. And so the two books since Alex has come back, she naturally was struggling to get over the the bad experience. And so I heard from readers she was a little too whiny. They they wanted her back in the courtroom. They wanted her back on on her feet. So the leave was over. She was very ready to come back. The first scene, as you know, is is in the courtroom. Alex going to stand up for one of her young lawyers who's being knocked around in court by the judge and the minute she gets back, chapter two, to her desk, there is a very difficult new case waiting for her. So I wanted to bring her back full force, and I, I think she's here. I agree, but I think people were a little hard on her, wondering whether she's ready to come back. I thought they were hard on her. Thank you, Let Pat. Let me put it that way. I think they were, too, and I must say, you know, I heard both the the wonderful thing about social media is how easy it is for people to contact you and find you. The old days, they had to, you know, get stationary and a stamp and spend the money to find the editor to find you. So now they just tell you she needs to stop crying. She needs to be decisive. She needs not to lean on Mike Chapman. And uh, and on the other hand, were the readers who were saying, give her a break, give her a little time, you know, get so. So she had two books to to get herself together. And I think this is a good thriller in the storytelling sense. Well, the book Blood Oath is really about sexual abuse of minors and how pedophiles pick their victims and groom them and often buy their silence, so to speak. And I thought that this was a, an important message to give to readers about that whole ugly scene. Yeah, and in this case, as you know, Pat, we're talking about a teenage girl. And so this is a 14-year-old young woman who has every vulnerability imaginable. Her mother was a single mother. Mother died. She was living with relatives with whom she didn't get along, ran away with a best friend. And she was the perfect victim in that sense. And so someone older than she, someone in a position of power and strength, really did the the whole grooming business. And I think what I wanted to show as you pick up is, is the vulnerability of a teenager in that situation who 
is ready to be taken advantage of, having no idea that she's not supposed to be following the orders of the person giving them. And blood oath is part of that psychological grooming in this case. The expression blood oath means a number of different things, both from religion and from various cults. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea of keeping a secret. And so literally back in medieval times, and we know what happens current day, you cut yourself, nick yourself and the other person, and you mix the blood and make a blood oath never to tell and very dire things are supposed to happen if you tell them that was the offender's control over Mm -hmm. this young woman Mm -hmm. and I was on a lighter note looking for a title of the book and one was rejected by the publisher (laughs) laughing because that often happens for marketing reasons and my um, stepson came home gave my husband a uh, bottle of bourbon And the make uh, of the small batch bourbon was Blood Oath. And I said, oh, (laughs) I can work that into a mystery. (laughs) (laughs) So it actually may be one of the few books named for a a hard liquor. (laughs) Alex and Mike, uh, Mike Chapman, the homicide detective, they are now a couple. That's nice, but I worry. (laughs) (laughs) You're meant to worry. You're meant to worry. And again, this is where the feedback from readers is every bit as important to me as with editors. And as you know, I'm just starting a tour for Blood Oath and I'll get I'll get this in every bookstore and speech that I give uh, uh, from readers. And sure. from the beginning, um, I had no plans when I started this series 20 books ago for Alex and Mike to be uh, to become romantically involved. They were professional colleagues. He always needled her, but covered her back at the same time. Yeah. She had a very healthy love life. She had first a journalist that she had been involved with and she had an investment banker and she's been through a number of relationships and then only several books ago became romantically entangled with Mike Chapman. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are readers who love this. And uh, for those of your listeners who who like romance, um, the romance community gets very involved if they if they read suspense too, then they get very involved in who she's dating and what should happen. <laughs> so there are people who like this and then there are people who think it definitely muddies the the waters. What can they do in investigations together that really is legitimate? What shouldn't they do? So Twenty books in, when I think of my colleagues, uh, whether it's Mary Higgins Clark or Lee Child, Michael Connolly, Harlan mm-hmm. Coben, as you go forward writing books, the characters rock and roll, and and um, we'll see. They're not married; they're newly living together, and we'll see if this lasts or isn't meant to. With Alex's boss, the the DA was assassinated. There is now a vacancy where she works. Will Alex go for it? We're going to find out. So in Blood Oath, we get right into the middle of that battle. This book gets into helping her decide whether she wants to run or not. And I think in book 21, which I'm writing now, she, uh, untitled, has has the word graveyard somewhere in the title. I think we'll we'll know the decision by this time next year. Oh, goody. We always learn something about New York that we didn't know. And Rockefeller University plays a role in Blood Oath. It certainly does. It's one of the most fascinating places in this city, I think. And what surprised me as a New Yorker who's been here you know, 50 years, I and so many of my friends, it hides in plain sight. It's yeah. on York Avenue, 
the Upper East Side. It's got elegant wrought iron gates that are a century old. John D. Rockefeller founded the university as an institute in 1900. It's the country's premier medical institute. Mm-hmm. And I, I just didn't know what was behind that gate, behind those walls. And serendipity has a wonderful way of playing into this. A, a brilliant scientist who's affiliated there met me at dinner on vacation, just somewhere else, mm-hmm. and invited me to come in and lecture about forensic DNA. These scientists use DNA in their work all the time, but not the criminal justice applications. Mm-hmm. And after my lecture, he said, would you like a tour? And the old parts of the campus are extraordinary. There are 25 Nobel Prize winning scientists who've been faculty at RUCU. It's called mm-hmm. a university. There's no, as Mike Chapman would say, there's no football team and no cheerleaders. It's a, <laughs> it's a graduate research facility. Mm-hmm. But there's an old hospital built in 1910 30 beds that is just for medical research. So some of the early work on scarlet fever, yellow fever, infectious disease, polio, AIDS, when the epidemic hit, and now things like Ebola happen there. So it's a very small place, very specified work. And then the uh, security guards showed me the tunnels under the original campus, which are fairly creepy and not sure anybody knows after 100 years where they go anymore. So once I saw the tunnels, I knew I had a venue for a murder mystery. It was pretty good. (laughs) Alex is such a compelling character. Could she find a home maybe in a series on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that? Have you ever thought in that direction? Oh, Pat, I think about it all the time. <laughs> I hope one of your listeners thinks about it. I'm a Michael Connolly fan. I think Bosch, his show about his detective, Harry Bosch, mm-hmm. just going into a fifth season is one of the best translations of a series. And Connolly has stayed very involved with it. He, I think, helps with the screenwriting. He's an executive producer. And it shows you how well this kind of thing can be done. So I am not one of those writers who says, oh, Hollywood will will ruin my book. <laughs> I would keenly like one of your listeners to uh, produce the, the Alex Cooper series, Coop instead of Bosch, Coop for Coop, Amazon I like Prime. It. Yeah, I, well, I do think about it. I love it. Well, Linda, we'll start beating the drum on that, okay? Thank you. I count on you. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk about this. I always look forward to a new Alex Cooper book, and I love the, the whole series, and I'm thrilled that you're working on uh, it's book number 21, right? Right. (laughs) Yes. And I'm so grateful to you. And it's so wonderful still that there are book shows uh, and author talks. And I, I we are all grateful to you for that. Well, thank you. Sometimes change can drive a person to do crazy things. And what do you know? That's exactly what happens in Hipster Death Rattle, the debut novel from Brooklyn born writer Richie Narvaez. It features a bike-riding, knife-wielding murderer cutting down hipsters in the buzzy and rapidly gentrifying neighborhood of Williamsburg. Richie came by our studios to talk about his tongue-in-cheek take on New York City's ever-evolving scene. I think there are more than a few native New Yorkers who've dreamed of dispatching of (laughs) an annoying hipster. Yes. So tell me, what are your reasons for doing it in this book? Uh, My reasons for... Dreaming and writing about dispatching hipsters has to do with the fact I was born and raised in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And after college, I went back there. This is the 80s, early 90s. 
and it was starting to change. And at first it was uh, sort of interesting. Oh, look at these interesting people coming into the neighborhood. Isn't that kind of cool? But then things started to change and there were these little cafes that were really expensive and there was this sense that they didn't really want to mingle with us and there was, uh, I, I, to be judgmental, of course, uh, there were a bit of pretentiousness to them, I think, and that's one of the things that people uh, dislike about hipster or hipsterism is this um, false sense of coolness uh, and uh, a sense of being above it all. And I think that it just was uh, it created a lot of uh, tension in the neighborhood. And also as the neighborhood was changing um, and people had to move out, and I saw that, oh, this is gentrification, uh, it, I, I was filled with a lot of anger. And I think a, a lot of New Yorkers, uh, you know, gentrification is a big issue in the city. And so uh, the, the hipsters are sort of symbolic of that. Uh, even, it's not necessarily their fault, but they are part of the... I mean, they're not planning to be malicious. They're not planning to be gentrifiers. But because of their existence, it happens. And the book itself is an unflinching look at gentrification. Yes. And, you know, how do you feel about what's been happening in neighborhoods like Williamsburg, like mm. the South Bronx, like Upper Manhattan? Oh, it's... Oh, God. It's... I was, I was, uh, I was talking about this last night. There's a... Uh, they, they, uh, someone asked me, in writing the book, was I able to get past a lot of that anger that I felt? And I was like, not quite. Because every time I hear about gentrification, it sort of pulls the Band-Aid or uh, rips the scab in a way. It's like, oh, my God, again, somebody's neighborhood is just, you know, what they felt uh, comfortable. Their comfortable sense of home is being destroyed. Their culture is being erased or just shunted to the side. And it always makes me feel uh, uh, full of bile. Uh, so it's kind of tough, but that's why I write. I write to to sort of to try to feel better about it, or at least to get my head around the ideas of it. And it's sort of yeah, as we were saying before, a vicarious kind of revenge. I guess that's what the book is about. It's full of all these characters that really I think represent what real New York is about, and mm-hmm. specifically these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Are they people that you remember from the old neighborhood? Uh-huh. Are they or are they just? The complete pure visions of your imagination. Oh no! Almost everybody, uh, everyone is a guest star. Uh, everyone is somebody I know. Um, the lead character is a little bit me, but also a very much a friend of mine who actually does play petanque mm-hmm. uh, uh, all over New York City. There's a petanque courts, and it's this sort of um, older man game. It's like bocce ball, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it, it just seems it just seemed to be so symbolic of. Um, it seemed very hipsterish to be doing this stuff that adds up to nothing. It's not a very athletic thing, but he was, uh, I use him as a perfect kind of character uh, as a start. And then also um, Mr. Litvinchuk, the uh, the real estate guy, mm-hmm. uh, who's half Hasidic and half Puerto Rican, was based on my junior high school uh, 50 from, from, from Williamsburg, junior high school 50 Spanish teacher who was half Hasidic and half Puerto Rican. And the personality is exactly, I mean, that's how I remembered his personality. And it, it was just... A, uh, I could hear his voice as I was writing. And that's why, you know, you do this kind of stuff. You, you, you get your friends, you, you cast them in the role, and then you can hear them and see them. And then, of course, they change as the thing goes. But um, it's just, yeah, it's definitely part. And all these other ones, the, 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 uh, the Italian cops uh, based on somebody I knew. Um, the mom there is a little bit on my mom. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so everybody is based on somebody, sure. Did you ever know anyone in real life who wore a Christmas suit? Oh, I, well... <laughs> 
I think uh, that is a whole part of the doo-wop culture, which can be very, um, what's a nice way to say this, colorful. <laughs> Just that's the best way to say it. Uh, and, but I th- it's still a powerful culture, the, the doo-wop culture. So yeah, I just, I, I mean, I didn't exactly see someone in a Christmas suit, but I can imagine someone wearing a Christmas suit. And I do mention in the book, there's a guy who wears a grass suit. And there was actually a guy who wore a suit made of grass. I mean, Williamsburg is uh, uh, is like a constant Halloween party for some people. I mean, they just that's part of the that hipsterish that whole sort of like trying to be something new, uh, which can be interesting but also irritating at the same time. Is there anything good that comes from gentrification? Oh God, I think. Uh, the actual act of gentrification, the, 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 the principle of gentrification is not a good thing. Uh, a neighborhood uh, revivification or revival with, with business investment in, in it is a good thing. But gentrification, I think, almost by definition is erasing people who are there. And it's, um, it's not, it, it's sort of, uh, it's a little bit like colonization. We're going to come in, oh, hey, instead of... Um, uh, Columbus and his guys coming in saying, hey, we like your spices. We like your natives. We want to move in. Do you mind? We're just going to slightly kill you and enslave you. Um, and in, in a different kind of way, I mean, that's sort of, that, that colonization is still going on in a way. Uh, but gentrification is 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 uh, parallel to that. And it's, oh, hey, we like the view. We love these buildings. It's so nice. It's so kitsch. We're going to move in. Do you mind? Uh, and then we're gonna push you out. So uh, I think, no, not no. There's not, <laughs> I can't. I can't so, really think of uh, uh, the long answer yeah, to, to get yeah. us to the short one. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you miss most then about like New York of the past? Oh wow. Um, I think. I mean, honestly, uh, uh, a lot of this uh, uh, New Yorkers, I think, feel this kind of. Um, attachment to the past. I think we're a sentimental and um, slightly grouchy character. And we're, we're always grumbling about, oh, that deli was the best deli. Why isn't it there anymore? Why did they knock down that movie theater? It was a wonderful movie theater. Um, so I think we're always a little bit uh, attached to these things that we grew up with. Because um, New York is such an iconic you know, city. It has so much character. And then to see pieces of that character disappear, like, oh, well, why? I love that place. But I, I think I miss... The feeling of familiarity when I grew up, it's just I, I knew everybody or at least knew their faces in the south side of Brooklyn. Uh, there were these two wonderful tiny movie theaters. There was this great uh, Chinese restaurant where they spoke wonderful Spanish. Um, there's a, there is a one coffee shop that I think is still hanging on that serves uh, this very popular drink with uh, Latinos called uh, Morir Soñando. Mm-hmm. And I think it's still there. Uh, but that I, uh, those kinds of things, those little joints and the feeling of comfort from the people, I, I miss quite a bit. I know just to turn our maybe attention now to writing itself. Mm-hmm. This is your first novel? First novel, yes. What was that like versus all the short stories you've written before? Oh, my God, it was horrible. It was torture. <laughs> um, a short story is like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's like cooking a meal. Um, and pretty soon you're going to know if it sucks. Uh, it's an art form where, okay, I worked on it and uh, it's not working uh, and I'm just going to try making it again. And it's not so hard for a short story. You do a novel 
it's going to take a long time before you really realize, okay, well, this isn't working at all, and I have to throw all this work out and start again. So um, it is a bit actually a bit torturous, this starting and stopping again. Uh, but it was something that I had been wanting to do for years, and I knew it was important for my writing career. I mean, short stories are great. People love short stories, but people pay attention to you more when you have the novel. So... Um, yeah, I just dug into it. Uh, and I think in learn in doing it, I finally learned, oh, I could do it. I don't know if I could like tell, tell somebody, this is how you write a novel. Uh, I don't know if I remember it that well. But it was, it was a great process. It just it took forever. It just seemed to take forever. Does that mean you'll do it again? Yeah, to- totally, totally. Yeah, it's, it's um, like a really bad road trip. Oh, you know, I still want to do it again because, you know, I, I learned something, I guess, about myself. But, yeah, it was a great experience. And I, it's, a, it's sort of a new art form. It's different than a short story form. So I want to keep exploring it so I feel like I'm, I, I'm, I can be good at it. And will you, know? you stick to your New York roots? Yes, yeah. I, um, it's not necessarily, well, well, I guess it is writing what I know. But it is just, it's what I, I love to write about. Though I, uh, I do write science fiction and a little horror, so I might get out of my New York roots, but it'll probably still be there somehow in the character anyway. And that witty sarcasm too, because there's a yeah. lot of that woven throughout this book, which I said to you before we started recording, yeah. had me laughing on the subway. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, that's just me, uh, witty sarcasm. I guess, or the, the, it's either me, the New Yorker, uh, in me. But yeah, that's that comes through in all my work. It's hard to resist. <laughs> As a native New Yorker, mm-hmm. I totally get where this book is coming from. Mm-hmm. I understand the characters, the neighborhoods. To someone who's not from the city, mm-hmm. what do you think will appeal to them in oh. this book? Well, going back to what you said before, I think everybody, I think a lot of people don't like hipsters <laughs> or they don't like young upstarts, you know. Uh, and again, this is sort of the crotchety, uh, uh, complaining uh, New Yorker kind of an attitude, grumpy thing. Oh, these young people with all their new ideas or their fancy rock and roll. Um, I think that is sort of universal in, in across a lot of cultures, except for the younger people. Um, but uh, it's sort of the, the, the thing about hipsters that they say is hipsters don't say that they're hipsters. They never think that they're actual hipsters. So they made laughing, oh, people like this are so pretentious as they put their scarves on and their fancy glasses. Um, and get on the L train. <laughs> and get on the L train <laughs> and with their big lattes. You know, oh, these hipsters, I hate hipsters too. Hipsters suck, yeah. So the new book is Hipster Death Rattle. Richie Narvaez, thank you so much for coming by and talking to us about it. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It was great. In the care and feeding of ravenously hungry girls, we meet the Butler sisters, a trio of women attempting to come to terms with their complicated family history and present state of affairs. The book is the debut novel from journalist Anissa Gray, and she recently spoke with our Marla Diamond about how her own personal experiences influence the story. Your book focuses on one family living in the present day in a small river town in Michigan, and it begins with the character Althea, who is in jail. Tell us a little bit about her and the family we are about to meet. Mm, Althea is uh, the de facto matriarch for this family. She has been entrusted with the care of her siblings since she was 12 years old, so you have, after the death of their mother. Um, so you have Althea, the eldest matriarch. You have um, the brother Joe, uh, who was younger, and then the two younger sisters, uh, Viola and Lillian. And then we find out a lot about this family and the trouble they have. 
Althea and actually her husband as well, they're both sent uh, to prison for defrauding their neighbors, friends, and much of their community. Um, not to sort of give a spoiler away, away but it's, it's one of those crimes where it shocks the community. So not only do you have the fallout in the family, uh, you also have the fallout in the community, and it is her siblings who sort of come together uh, after this crime is committed. It's interesting. You have to get through most of the book to find out the origin of a lot of these issues. We won't spoil it, but why did you wait to unpack some significant details? Well, I think it's sort of, uh, you know, some of the best stories, you know, we read or you hear or you watch on television. You oftentimes have this um, peeling back of layers, right? You have sort of the inciting incident, and in the reader's mind, there is the question why. And that's not always an easy answer, and I think that's the case in this book here. Um, You have Althea, you have her two siblings, you have her husband, and you also have her two teenage daughters, and they're all asking the question of why. And it's not a sort of... uh, answer that you can arrive at quickly. I think it, it takes some time to get, the know, to get to know these characters and sort of see it and figure it out on your own. And I think some of the best storytelling is when you sort of take a reader through and they can see and make things out on their own, and that takes a bit of time. The title of the book contains the words ravenously hungry, and I think that has at least two meanings, both physical and emotional hunger. You do delve into the area of eating disorders, and I'm wondering why you decided to add that to the book. You really develop these characters. One of them suffers from bulimia. Why is that an important characteristic for Viola, the middle sister? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. When I sat down to write the book, that's where the story started. The story started with Viola, uh, who worked as a therapist in an eating disorder and was in an eating disorders clinic and was in the middle of a relapse. And that is really what I plan to focus on in the book, just her story. But, um, and it was based on some of my own experiences in treatment, which gets to your question of, you know, sort of how do I have a background in it? I had suffered from an eating disorder from college until roughly age 40. So Viola has some of that. Uh, some of that is seen through the character of Viola. But so that's where I started. Um, but as I was writing Viola's story, the the, the st- it felt too narrow in scope. So I flailed around for about six months or so, and then I stopped and took a closer look at the other people in her life. Um, her sisters. They were there in her biography and in her backstory, but I didn't have an intention really of writing much about them. But when I started to see her through the lens of family, um, that's when the voices of her sisters, Althea and Lillian, became much more resonant. And I could see there was a much broader, a much richer story to be told and, um, and told through the perspectives of all of these characters. And so it was more of an evolution of a story that actually started at, 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 with, with, the, with the eating disorders uh, component. Okay. That's really interesting. Originally, you wanted to focus on Viola. Do you, do you see yourself in her? Certainly the, the eating disorders aspect of her story, uh, yes, there are some commonalities, but I, would not, I wouldn't say she's me. Um, but yeah, there, there's certainly that uh, connection there mm-hmm. with that character. 
It is the women in your book that are the strongest, most resourceful, most resilient, and the men are either abusive or absent. Uh, did you intend this to be a feminist book? Hmm. Um, well, it's certainly a book told through the perspective of uh, three different women. So, yeah, if you want to call it a feminist book, then absolutely. Um, it's their story. Um, and it's told through their perspective, so you see the men in their lives through their eyes. There's also the the um, husband, Proctor, who uh, is Althea's husband, and he uh, is jailed with her. So, And you do hear his voice through letters as well. So he's slightly different from the two other male characters in the book. Um, I would just say generally my goal in sitting down to write this book was to tell an honest story um, about all of these characters. And, uh, you know, this is, this is what we have. And tell us about the role that faith and religion play in the book. There are a lot of Bible passages that Althea uses to comfort herself in jail. I would say it's tremendously important, and now just from two perspectives, from the writer's perspective, from my perspective, that draws a little bit on my own background. I am, uh, my father is a preacher, he's a bishop, so I grew up uh, in uh, a very tight-knit Pentecostal church community, so I grew up uh, going to church a lot and uh, (laughs) knowing a lot of, reading the Bible a lot. So that's just sort of sitting there in my head just as a human being. So I sit down to write this book, and um, that sort of obviously comes across, and it comes across, I think, most strongly, as you point out, with a character, Althea. There's a particular scripture from Ezekiel uh, that she shares with her mother that uh, is resonant for her throughout uh, the book. And that scripture generally is about It's about uh, Ezekiel in the uh, Valley of the Dry Bones, and that's the scripture about um, death and resurrection, and that's sort of metaphoric in Althea's life. And water is a theme that comes into play at the end of the book. And I'm wondering, you're a very busy news person at CNN. Where do you find the time to write a novel? And this is no short story. How long did it take you? Well, this novel took about three years. you know, but I wasn't working on deadline. <clears throat> so I, I wrote this novel mostly on weekends and just, you know, random days off. So I had sort of the luxury of a, a leisurely writer writer schedule uh, that I could just sort of fit in with my, with my day job. Uh, these days I have a, a little bit more of a, um, of a tighter schedule. So I write a lot after work, and, of course, I write on weekends as well. So one of the things about having been a journalist for the entirety of my professional life is that uh, I view writing as work, so I'm pretty good about scheduling, uh, pretty good about being mindful of deadlines, and uh, you know just showing up for work every day. Was this something that you always thought you might do, write a book? Did you always think that you would be an author? I did, yeah. As a kid, um, I loved reading. Um, and I also enjoyed writing my own stories, so I always had this dream in the back of my mind about becoming a novelist. I ended up going in the direction of journalist journalism because, you know, once I found out, you know, graduating college, life cost money, <laughs> and I needed a steady paycheck. So I became a journalist, and I, and I loved that job, but a few years ago, I got a little burned out, and um, I revisited that um, childhood dream of becoming a novelist, and I made space, you know, and the time to sit down and get serious about writing fiction, 
and uh, that first novel wasn't the greatest, but I kept going. And um, now we have Karen Feeding, and, and here we are, which is why I encourage anyone who, you know, sort of is interested, any aspiring writers to, you know, keep going. So if you are thinking about writing a book, what's your best advice? A couple of things. I would say read a lot, and um, particularly at the level to which you aspire to write. And and write. Make the time to do it. Um, it, it that can be difficult if you don't feel the pressure of a deadline. Uh, you know, if you don't have a contract, if you don't have a commitment. But my advice is to um, encourage people to set a schedule for themselves and keep it and make it as important to them as, 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 uh, as a job. And write about what they know, their life experience. Write what you like uh, would, be my, would be my advice. I mean, you know, there are some great fantasy and sci-fi writers out there who build whole worlds, which is amazing to me. Um, and if that's your thing, write that. Um, write what you like. Write what you're drawn to. Write what, 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 you know, what feeds your soul is what I would say. Great advice. Thanks. The Karen Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, Anissa Gray's debut novel, is out in hardcover. Thank you so much, Anissa, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us this week. Next time, we go in search of King Arthur's tomb with only an ancient book and a spirit or two as our guide. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chirkovich.